1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> um, same situation was going on in both Corinth and Thessalonica, both of these two places that Paul wrote to. Uh, in both places, people were starting to say, there will not be a resurrection. <laughs> Once you're dead, you're dead. Jesus will come back, but only those who are alive at the time will see him coming. Everybody else, well, that's sad. They've missed the boat, and so they won't be coming back. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? You know, Jesus has shown that he's conquered death. He's come back to life again. So why have you got to say, well, that's all right for Jesus, but not for my old dead granny? <laughs> if Jesus has died for everyone, and if he is the, 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 the uh, way to God's kingdom, then surely death is no obstacle any longer. So it's in 1 Corinthians 15. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the topic we're looking at tonight. I've called it knowing where you're headed because it's so important for Christians to realize the world is not just going to go on the way it is forever until somebody, unfortunately, presses a button and the bomb explodes us all or we do something to the environment that blows everybody off or something like that. There is going to be an interruption into human history such as we've never seen in our lifetimes. Uh, I was talking to my one of my two granddaughters, two twin granddaughters the other day um, well, actually, it was before the summer now, and now I think about it, because that was when she was at primary school. She'd just come back from primary school, and she said, you know, we've just been looking at the ways the world could end, Grandad. It's quite scary, really, when you look at all this stuff in space. We could explode at any moment. We could have a meteorite cl crash into the earth, and that would be the end of us. I said, I don't think so, Jess. She said, why not? I said, well, have you ever read Second Peter chapter 2? She said, no. I said, well, you know, that'll give you a different perspective. Oh, all right. I'll go upstairs and read it right now. And uh, I went home shortly after that, so I never heard about it. But I said to her afterwards, so did you ever look at Second Peter 2? She said, yeah, it's different, isn't it? <laughs> God is in charge of the future. It won't be some random haphazard event that uh, brings uh, history to an end like a sick joke. Jesus is coming back. And the fact that it hasn't happened in 2,000 years doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It happens when God is ready. Anyhow, let's have a look at this thing. Knowing where your head is very important because if you get the wrong perspective on this, then life means an awful lot less, as we shall see. This is where I was given my degree. This is the Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford, where I got my, my degree in English many years ago, which was one of my biggest achievements in life. Mind you, it wasn't the biggest. This, at the risk of embarrassing, is probably where the biggest one came. 
you've probably seen this, this picture. This bridge was in my college, Hartford College in, in Oxford. And one night there was a young girl whom I, I invited to dinner there and uh, I'd been going out with for, for a little while, but I wasn't sure exactly how she felt about the whole thing. And uh, I took her up on the bridge afterwards just to show what was going on. And that was the first time I dared to hold her hand. <laughs> and she went stiff. And I thought, oh dear, wrong move. That's another one. And, and, and then she just relaxed. And that was the start of big things. So that was amazing. So that's my greatest achievement. But that was pretty good. And this is what it's like before you sit your exams in Oxford. You all mill together outside the examination schools. Uh, that's the big building on the high street that these people are all milling around outside. They're all going to sit their finals. They don't look particularly worried, do they? And you don't in Oxford. You've got to sort of hang around on the steps and discuss the critic, cricket and things like that, you know, because it's, uh, you don't want anybody to see that you're worried about your exams in any way. And then they, they ring a bell and you move into the hallway and there's a big gate, a barrier in front of you stopping you going any further. And you, you mill around for another few minutes and then another bell goes, you lift the gate and you have to go down the passageway, up another passageway, up the stairs and into the exam room. And of course, this being Oxford, nobody hurries. You just stroll along and discuss the cricket. You know, and, uh, and you go all the way up the stairs and you, you, you're in where you're supposed to be. And you've got a seat in there with a ticket on it. Uh, and it's got your name on it. The trouble is the room is L-shaped. It's all sorted in alphabetical order, but when it's L-shaped, how do you work? No, T-shaped, I mean. When it's T-shaped, how do you work out where the, the alphabet starts and finishes? So you spend the next 10 minutes of the exam, and the clock is ticking. The clock started the moment they raised the barrier, and you step next to him and go, where am I sitting? What's going on here? And it's a nerve-wracking experience because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what you're heading for. Of course, the second day is all right <laughs> because you know where your seat is now, and you can find it, and you can just get in there and get started. But uh, it always amazed me that, you know, people were so asocial and just not, not too bothered about it, wandering up the stairs at uh, a not very fast rate. Uh, yet they were inside full of fear, <laughs> as they confessed afterwards, because they just didn't know where they were going and they didn't know what was going to happen. Same thing happens with the results. After uh, the, all of the papers are marked, um, most people have their, their results, except for the people who are on the borderline of two grades. <laughs> and... Uh, I was just waiting for my exam results uh, and uh, uh, my tutor phoned me up and he said, listen, you're going to get invited back for an interview. I said, oh dear, that means I'm on the borderline of two grades. He said, um, well, I can't say anything about it, but I'm just ringing you to say, I wouldn't do too much revision if I were you. And I knew what he was saying. He was saying that they wanted me back for an interview because I'd got something which is pretty rare. It's called a congratulatory first. It's only given to the very top degrees in the exam. What happens is they call you back as if they're going to ask you questions to work out whether you get an A or a B or a B or a C, or whatever it happens to be. And when you walk into the room for this interview, the nine examiners all stand up and start applauding, <laughs> which was really quite nice. <laughs> but uh, I thought, you know, being Scottish, this, you've called me for the 350 miles south, just expensive, a, a train ticket just to be applauded for five minutes. Thank you very much. But it was good, actually. It was great because I knew from the start of that train journey what was going to happen at the end of it. I knew exactly where I was going. I didn't know what it'd be like, but I knew it was going to be great. great. And that's kind of where this passage leaves Christians, isn't it? We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know much about what it's going to be like, but we know it's coming. We know we're heading towards a safe and secure destiny, 
and there's nothing that should worry us as a result. Mind you, it's pretty complicated. When you try to put together all the biblical information, you get to charts and maps and all sorts of differences of opinion and, and, and all kinds of things. It gets very, very complex. So tonight, we're not going to go into different schemes of what the future might be. Um, I just want to uh, highlight four very simple things that come out of our passage in 1 Thessalonians. And uh, this passage tells us four things that we can be sure of. Uh, you may think that you go to heaven before the great tribulation or after the great tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation or some of us will go up on Monday and some will go up on Tuesday and, and uh, all kinds of different ideas. You may be a post-millennialist or an amillennialist or a pre-millennialist. Uh, you may be a partial rapture, uh, partial wrathist or all sorts of other things. It doesn't make a lot of odds. Here are four things that all Christians can be sure of. Number one, Jesus is returning. He's coming back to earth. Second, the dead will be the first to rise to meet him. If you're still alive at that point, you'll have to wait a minute. <laughs> the dead people are going to get there first. Third, next after that, the living will join them. And the fourth thing is, we'll never be parted from Jesus again. And so shall we always be with the Lord, it says. That's brilliant, isn't it? So those four things we know about, and I just want to look at those four things uh, briefly tonight, and then also, uh, just at the end, say, and so, what difference does it make? What do we do then as a result of knowing these things? Okay, let's look at those four things, shall we? First of all, Jesus is returning, and this passage tells us enough to make us sure about three things. First of all, he's returning personally. The first voice you hear when Jesus breaks into history once again is his. It's not that he's sent a bunch of angels to do the job or something like that. No. It sounds, doesn't it, as if there are angels coming back with him because uh, you hear the sound of, uh, of the angel too. But you will hear the voice of Jesus, the voice of command, telling the dead to come out of their graves and rise again. And Jesus is coming back personally. He's not finished with this world. You'd have thought that the cross and the, the resurrection was enough, wouldn't you? <laughs> but Jesus is perennial involved with this world he became human he's still human as well as divine there's that old hymn that says and didst thou love the race that loved not thee and didst thou take to heaven a human brow dost thou plead with man's voice by the crystal sea art thou our kinsman now and that's absolutely right he is indeed and because jesus is our kinsman He's human. He's not finished with this world. And he'll be coming back in person to take us to him still. You won't get an angel knocking on the door and saying, hey, that was a last thump, didn't you hear it? Come on, just jump on the bus and we'll take you off to heaven. No, it will be Jesus who comes back for his own. Secondly, he's coming back publicly. It's going to be loud. People are going to hear. People are going to know there is something going on. And so it's, it says in, in, in chapter 4, doesn't it? Uh, we don't want you to be ignorant. We believe that Jesus died according to the Lord's own when uh, we, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. People will know this is happening. It's going to be uh, the, the, the most important eruption into the world's history we've ever seen. And third, well, uh, no, Sorry, I, I meant to introduce this bit first. This guy, Sun Myung Moon, who died just a couple of years ago or so. He was the leader of a thing called the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity, which was not actually a Christian movement, 
It was one of the cults that became very, very big in the 1970s, and it still is, has a lot of wealth and a lot of property around the world, although it's largely discredited. Nearly as many Moonies, as they were called, around as there were in those days. Now, the Moonies believed, secretly, they wouldn't admit this in public, but they believed that Sun Myung-bin was actually the second coming of Jesus. <laughs> they believed that he had come back and, and uh, just as Jesus had come the first time, Jesus came as a baby. He was unrecognized. Nobody knew who he was until he was a bit older. And they said, in the same way, Sun Myung Moon has come back, and he is the second coming of Jesus. And uh, uh, passages that talk about Jesus coming back, like 1 Thessalonians 5, the next passage you're going to encounter in this book, say that Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. And they say, yes, that's right. Sun Myung Moon was unrecognized by anybody. Thieves are people of lowly status in society. Nobody pays any attention to thieves, and that's what it means. But that's not what it's saying. When thieves come in the night to your house, they don't just come unrecognized and in lowly status. They come to pinch something. And they don't put a card through the door beforehand to say, um, this is uh, Fred Jones, your local robber. I'll be in your house tonight. I hope you don't mind. I'll take your stereo this time. You know, if he did, you'd be waiting for him, for you, or somebody else would be. And uh, uh, it, it doesn't happen. And when the Bible says that Jesus is coming like a thief in the night, that means at a moment that nobody expects it. And so at some point you don't expect it, Jesus will be back. Sun Myung Moon doesn't qualify because he didn't burst on the scene. He grew up in Korea where he was a businessman and uh, he, he made all sorts of followers and all, you know, all kinds of funny stories about Sun Myung Moon. But he certainly wasn't the second coming of Jesus. This will be something big and public and also powerful. Jesus is coming back powerfully. This is not going to be like last time. He won't be born a baby in Bethlehem, disregarded by everybody. He will be there uh, coming with clouds and every eye will see him. He's, it's going to be visible and personal and public and powerful. So that's the first thing. Jesus is coming back in person. Second, the dead will be the first to rise to meet him. This, uh, Paul is, is saying this and stressing this in 1 Thessalonians 4 to say to these Thessalonians, look, those Christians who've died since I was with you, they have not missed out. It's not that they haven't succeeded in staying alive long enough to see God's glory. No, Jesus is the one who raises people from the dead. Now, you might ask three questions about this. First of all, why do the dead go first? And uh, there are various reasons that have been given for that. It doesn't actually say in Scripture, does it? Some people said it's because they need to be reunited, body, soul, and spirit. You see, when you die, your body goes into the ground, but your soul stroke spirit, well, that goes off with God. And of course, if you're alive, then you don't have that problem. <laughs> but if you've died, then it all needs to be fixed together again. So maybe God does that first because that's what needs to happen. Well, I think those who are living need to be changed as well, don't they? Because the passage you've read says that we'll be changed when we see him. Um, so clearly something's got to go with the living as well. So I'm not sure that's a good answer. Second, some people would say, well, it's because they've completed their, 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 they've lived their complete course all the way through. And they've gone through death, which is the worst thing that sin does to human beings. It ends their lives. It, it, it puts them through that termination, that absence from everybody that they've ever known, from the world that they used to live in. So perhaps they go first because they have suffered more than uh, people who are still alive at the time of the second coming. I don't know, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure of that one either. Third, it could be because they demonstrate more fully the power of the resurrection by rising first. I mean, if you see dead people coming out of the cemetery, wow. That means that something really powerful is going on. It means that Jesus Christ really is the Lord of life and death. So maybe they rise first just to show everybody that there really is something happening here. Fourth, 
Perhaps it's because they had longer to wait. <laughs> and God isn't slow to keep his promises. So if you've been in the grave for 500 years or even 50 years, God deals with you first because they've had longer to wait for the promise to be fulfilled. I think so there might be something in some of those, but I'm not sure about any of them, quite honestly. What I do think Paul is trying to stress here is that if the dead rise first, that's a sign that God never lets go of people. Never does. He, he, once you're dead, you are still remembered by him. In Psalm 116, he says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. When Christians die, that is not a random, deplorable event. They may die forgotten by the world. They may die after persecution and torture in somebody's prison cell in some part of the world. Their families may not know what's happened to them for years after. I've got a story of a girl uh, for whom that was the case um, uh, coming up later on. Uh, but God doesn't forget, and God remembers them. And God cares about them as well. And whatever agony and pain they go through, you might think, what's that bottle doing there? Well, that's what's called a lacrimatory. And in Psalm 56, uh, there's a curious, curious phrase where it says that God keeps the tears of his saints in a bottle. <laughs> lacrimatory, that's, that, this is one here. And uh, it, it was a, a bottle in which you kept tears. If your husband went off to fight in the war and you were crying every night, you might cry into this bottle. <laughs> and save the tears to show him when you go, look, this is how much pain I went through when you were out there fighting, or whatever. And especially when somebody died, the tears would be kept behind. Tears were precious. And so they were kept in a bottle like that to remember people who died, to remember people who'd been through all sorts of things. And so what that curious Psalm reference is saying is, look, God knows every pain, every agony, all the, all the feelings of, of frustration and, uh, and despair that we go through. And he doesn't forget a single one of them. And if the dead rise first, <laughs> that's yet another proof. Whether you're alive or dead, you're in God's hands and he's not going to let go of you. So that's the first question. But there's a second question too. Where are they right now? Where are dead people? Clearly they're in the ground because they're going to rise to be with Christ when he comes in the air. And it talks about them being asleep. So does, is that the full story? No, not really, because the Bible says things that seem con contradictory to start with. You see, there are some verses that talk about them being asleep in the cemetery. But there are other verses that seem to talk about them being in the presence of Jesus right now. So what happens to you when you die? For example, um, Daniel chapter 12, which talks about the dead being raised, says multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. When you're dead, you're asleep. That's where you are. Uh, some to everlasting, ask others to shame and everlasting contempt. But that's where you are. You're asleep in the ground. And Jesus said the same about Lazarus in John chapter 11. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And clearly Lazarus wasn't physically asleep. He was dead. And Jesus called him back from the tomb. So Christians who've died are asleep. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it says in those verses, they're dead. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In other words, we're not all going to die, but everybody, alive or dead, who is a Christian, is going to be changed at the time of Jesus Christ. So you think, right, that's fine. We die, we put them in the ground, and we just sleep through to the resurrection day. And then, of course, you think about the thief who was crucified next to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today, today, you will be with me in paradise. And you think, well, what about all these years of sleeping in the ground he's supposed to be doing first? 
Is he asleep or is he up there? And you find more verses along the same. Uh, Philippians, you might remember doing Philippians in evening services not that long ago. And Paul says there, look, I'm in prison. I could be killed at any moment. Somebody could come in with orders from Caesar and a big two-bladed sword and then I've had it. I'm, I'm un uncertain what I want to happen. I, I want to go and be with Jesus. But if it's necessary for you, I'm happy to stay here. And I think that's what's going to happen. And in fact, that was what happened. But he said, you know, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. In other words, if I depart, I will be with Christ. You think, Paul, 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 what about all those years of sleeping in the cemetery? Shouldn't you be dead and drowned? You think you're going to go off and be with Jesus? And uh, he writes to the Corinthians. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So being away from the body, in other words, physically dead, means being at home with the Lord. Now, how do you square those two things? Either you're in the graveyard or you're in heaven. But you can't be both, can you? Well, maybe you can. <laughs> if this is um, the point at which somebody dies at that end of the, 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 the uh, uh, chart, we have, a, we have a funeral service for him or her, uh, put them in the ground, and then they stay there, asleep, within history, right through to the day when the voice of the archangel and the trumpet uh, and all of the rest of it sounds, and Jesus comes back. And so they rise to meet the Lord there in history. So their body is asleep in the ground. But is that the whole story? Well, clearly not, if those uh, verses that we read out last have got anything to do with it. And it seems to me that when somebody dies, they are outside time. <laughs> the normal processes of time don't apply to us any longer. And so um, outside of time, it's possible for them to go straight away. So as soon as you die, that moment you're with Jesus, you're in paradise, a strange Persian word that means the king's private garden. You're taken home to Jesus. And for you, it's the second coming already. I think that's the only way it can work. The only way that can make sense of these verses. The Bible doesn't spell it out particularly, but that seems to me to be what's happening. So my old mum, who died a few years ago, my father, who died more recently, they're already there. They're already in victory with Jesus. And one of these days, those of us who are alive and remain will be there too, either through death or through Jesus coming back. So is there a third question? Well, I think there is. What's this got to do with the clouds? They're going to be up in the clouds. And uh, why does uh, it, it, it talk about uh, um, clouds in this way? The Lord himself will come from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise first. And we'll be caught up, we who are alive and remain, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Well, there are, there are 63 references in the Bible to clouds. I checked them this afternoon. <laughs> and I think when you look at clouds in the Bible, um, of those 63, they represent something, usually, whenever they're mentioned. It's not just clouds. It's, it's a metaphorical thing. And clouds are used to represent a meeting point between heaven and earth. There are clouds on the top of Mount Sinai, the, the, the mountain where, where uh, Jesus, uh, Moses met with, with, with God. Um, when Jesus was, was, was uh, uh, taken up into heaven, a cloud passed before them. He stood on the mountain path, uh, mountaintop and he was taken away from their sight. And often you'll find, if you look at those references to clouds, they mean a place that isn't heaven and isn't earth. It's a place where God's glory comes earthwards. And that, I think, is what's being talked about here. Clouds represent something else as well. The mystery of God being revealed to humans. 
whenever in the Bible humans and God meet in the clouds, then something is revealed, something is shown that humans would never be able to see by themselves. So you're not going right to heaven at this point, but you are able to see things that you would never see purely from an earthly perspective. The transfiguration is another thing that comes to mind, isn't it? On the, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured in front of his disciples, and there on that very high hill between heaven and earth, they see something they would never have seen otherwise. And there's a third thing as well. Clouds represent mercy and judgment. God sets his rainbow in the clouds after the flood in the Old Testament. And uh, uh, yet the clouds sometimes represent threats. And some, some of the references to clouds in the Bible see them as a bad thing, a threatening thing. Ecclesiastes talks about the clouds returning after the rain, bringing more and more sorrow into people's lives. And so it talks about mercy and it talks about judgment. And that's exactly what the second coming of Jesus is going to be about, isn't it? Mercy, release, freedom for those who trust him and belong to him. The family going home. But on the other side, judgment is for all. Uh, my time is up. Now, obviously, a lot of this is pictorial language, and it's very hard to imagine what it's going to look like. But we ought to, one thing that we would miss, I think, probably, uh, being where we are uh, in history, is the cultural background that the Thessalonians would have picked up very quickly. Because there are two Greek words that are used in this passage, which are very, very important indeed. The word that's used in verse 13 for the appearance, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the word parousia. And uh, that's a word that was often used in those days for the visit of a dignitary, Caesar or one of his relatives, the local governor, whoever it was, to an important city. Thessalonica had seen lots of that down through history. Back in the days of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, visiting dignitaries had come there all the time. And what used to happen was that when these people came, it changed history. It was the biggest day in, in, in the town's history. And you wouldn't just come marching straight in. A bit like the clouds. What you would do would be to come to a spot maybe five miles outside of the city with his retinue, you know, his, his servants and the people who were traveling with him. And they would all stop there at a prearranged point. And the citizens of the town, the, the chief ones, the town councillors and the mayor and the people who really mattered in that society, would come out and meet the train that was coming in at that point five miles outside the city. And that was called the apanthesis, <laughs> which is the word that's used later on in verse 15, for the coming, <coughs> excuse me. Oh, <coughs> I'm only just those who will be alive and remain. Never mind, we'll make it. Apathesis meant the coming ceremonially of, of, of somebody. And uh, so what's happening here, I think, with coming up into, into the clouds to meet Jesus, uh, <coughs> uh, is that you're doing that because you are special to him. You're one of those special citizens. In Thessalonica, when they'd met out five miles outside the town, they'd form themselves into a procession and all come back in. And people would be lining the streets and waving flags and cheering and all sorts of things. And as one of the citizens of Thessalonica, if you were in that procession, you'd be riding along and waving at people and feeling very, very special and important indeed. That's the image here. When Jesus comes back, you and I, if we're Christians, are going to be special. We're going to be in his train. Thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. That's, what, that, that's the image that's being used. Now, of course, Christians argue, 
about whether or not uh, Jesus comes down to earth at this point with the saints with him or whether they all go off to heaven. And we won't get into that stuff tonight, but that's the, that's the basic picture that's behind it. Jesus meets the saints just outside and they share in his reflected glory. Okay, so let's move on because that's, <coughs> that's, we've taken a long time over that point. Next point is, third, next, the living will join them. If you and I are still alive at that day, when Jesus comes calling, certain things will be true. First of all, we'll be reunited with those we've lost. We will meet people who have died and gone to, 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 to the presence of Jesus that we've never, never uh, seen for years and years, maybe never even seen. Uh, there'll be people in heaven that you want to talk to because their story's in the Bible <laughs> and you want to find out what they were really like and what happened to them and so on. I remember Alec Mateer when he was uh, lecturing on Isaiah, claiming that uh, there was only one man written the whole of Isaiah and not, as modern scholars say, three different Isaiahs. He said, I think there's only one Isaiah. But if you get to heaven and you see me arguing in the corner with three men, you'll know I was wrong. <laughs> and that kind of, we're reunited in all sorts of ways with all sorts of people. And I'm personally quite glad about that because I am old enough now. All kinds of people I've known in my life who've been very special to me, but with whom I have never spent enough time. I want to see John Stott when I get to heaven. I want to see Jay Stafford Wright. I want to see some of those people who I've had some contact with, and they've blessed my life in all sorts of ways, but they've gone, gone, and I can't talk to them anymore. I want to make a beeline for my Tina. She was the family historian, <laughs> and she had all kinds of stories. I remember sitting around one Christmas day when everybody else had had too much to eat, and you know, after Christmas dinner, they all fell asleep, and it was only me and her out, uh, awake. And she just started reminiscing and thinking about her childhood on the east coast of Scotland. I remember thinking, I wish I had taped that. Because she just went into so much that was fascinating about the way people looked back in the 1920s and even way back beyond that. And if only I could have got some of that stuff down, that would have been so precious. And then she died. <laughs> and uh, one of these days, I'm going to hear all of those stories. And because it's the outside time, she can go on for as long as she wants. No problem. We'll be reunited with those we've lost. And for some of us, for very special people have died. That's an important thing, isn't it? And that's why Paul writes so strongly in both 1 Corinthians and in Thessalonians about this issue. Because we've got to be together again. And we'll be out of all the sorrows of this world. Suddenly, all of the stresses that bother you, your mortgage, paying for uh, heating this winter, the state of the world and everything that's going on, when Russia's going to start dropping nuclear bombs on us. All of that stuff, once the trumpet blows, it's over. It's finished. And we don't realize often in many situations just how much stress there is on us, do we? I remember thinking that uh, on, on, on Friday when I finally did my final lecture just before Friday lunchtime. The sense of relief was incredible. I thought, why do I feel so relieved? And it's just because I've been carrying a weight all week and needing to do all of this stuff and uh, do it in a way that people could understand and really get something across to them that they could take away with them. And when I didn't realize the pressure I was under. And then Friday lunchtime, ah, <laughs> it was great. And it's going to be that way, isn't it? Suddenly all of the worries that pile up in our minds and they're just there all the time, they'll be gone because we'll be all the way out of the sorrows of this world. Third, we'll be in the direct presence of the king. We'll see Jesus. We've never seen him before. But we'll see him and we'll be in his presence forever after that. And we've grown to know him and love him and serve him and worship him while we're down here. And as we were saying this morning, 
the more time we spend getting to know him and praising him and learning what praise is all about down here, then the greater it will be up there. You know, the Bible talks about the reward that we'll get in heaven. And sometimes people say, well, why get rewarded in heaven? I mean, there's no reason for that, really, is there? I mean, okay, some people are better servants of God than others. But what exactly will the reward be? Because surely heaven's going to be perfect for all of us. And C.S. Lewis had an interesting answer to this. He says, maybe it's like this. Supposing a young boy says to you, he's about six or seven years old, I think we said, what is sex like? Is it like chocolate? Well, you might say, well, uh, yes, but um, no. <laughs> because how do you answer something like that? He's asking about something which is way beyond his experience. And there are some things that some people cannot even imagine because they just don't have the, the physical capacity, the mental and emotional capacity to understand those things. And so Lewis says, maybe that's what the reward means in heaven. That there will be some things that some of us will have the capacity for that others won't. And when you've lived a life of service to God down here, when you've got to know Jesus Christ as intimately as a human being down here can know him, when you've lived every day in the power of the Holy Spirit, then your capacity for the enjoyment of heaven will be massive. When you haven't really. When you've just, you've got your ticket to heaven, but that's about it. You haven't really spent much time praying, getting to know God. Uh, I haven't devoted much of your time to serving him. Well, you'll still get to heaven. Of course you will. And heaven will be glorious for you. But it'll be glorious on a scale that you can understand. And you won't have the depth and incredible uh, intensity of heaven that other people will have because they've got the education. Maybe and maybe not, I don't know. It's just Lewis theorizing. But certainly, we'll be in the direct presence of the king, all of us. And for some of us who've got to know him better down here, it'll be amazing. For some of us who haven't really bothered, it'll be good. <laughs> but it might not be as, as good as it might be. Fourth and final thing, you'll be glad to hear. We'll never be parted from Jesus again. We'll always be with him. And when the parousia happens, when we come into the presence of the king and we're taken in his, his uh, triumphal trip back into the city, what does that mean? First of all, the parousia will fulfill the deepest longings we've ever had. Why? Because in all of our hearts, there is a longing for something you will never experience here on earth. However good life gets, there will always be a craving for something beyond it. The book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3, says this, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You can't be satisfied by anything in time. It's beautiful. You love it, but it's beautiful in its time. And the time passes and things decay and they fade and seasons of life go away, relationships end, all sorts of things finish in our life. And God has set eternity in our hearts. We want permanence. We want something that goes on. We want more than we get down here. One of our daughters, our middle daughter, um, when we took her on holiday, you could usually bank on it. Uh, last day of the holiday, she'd be in tears. And Sandy was a girl who really enjoyed her holidays. She just enjoys everything. She's just full of life. And to find her on tears, she said, what's the matter? What's the matter, Sandy? And she'd say, I don't want to go home. And you'd say, yeah, but don't you want to go home and play with your toys and see your budgie and get, you know, got get a hold of your friends again? Yeah, I want that too. <laughs> and we all know what that feels like, wanting more than you can possibly have. And 
when we've reached the end of the journey, when the trumpet blows, the Parousia will fulfill the deepest longings we've ever had. Eternity becomes a reality. Second, the Parousia will change us into what we ought to be. Because when we see Jesus, we will be changed. We won't all die, says Paul in Corinthians, but we will all be changed. And the thing that God has been building in us, this new personality, this new creation that's taking over the old us and making us what God always wanted us to be from the moment he created us, that will be complete. Paul says to the Philippians right at the start of his letter, I'm confident that the one who has begun a good work in you will continue to perfect it until the day of his appearing. And that's the way it should be, shouldn't it? As we live through life, uh, God gets to deal with us day by day and through his Holy Spirit, he rubs, knocks off the rough edges, he changes us into something much more beautiful. He builds something inside us, which is great. but it's going to go on right through to the day of his appearing. And that is when it will be complete. When I look into Jesus' eyes and he looks into mine, I will be different. And all of the things that have annoyed me and frustrated me about myself down through the years, the things that I cannot seem to get victory over, get battle with again and again, those things will just, in the light of the presence, be transformed. The parousia will change us into what we ought to be. What we will be, says John, has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And there's a third thing. The parousia will be the moment when we come home to someone new. <laughs> That's the important thing. You haven't seen him yet, says, says, Paul, says Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, but you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you're filled with an expressible and glorious joy. But how much greater that joy will be when you actually do see the person you love. This guy, an interesting fellow. This is Mike May. And for most of his life, he was blind. He wasn't born blind. He had an accident at the age of three when uh, uh, some chemicals exploded in front of his face. And it burned out one of his eyes completely and left the other one uh, pretty damaged. So damaged that actually sight was impossible for most of his life. He didn't let that stop him. <laughs> He did all kinds of things. Can you imagine? He got three bronze medals in the Paralympics as a downhill skier. And yeah, I know, I know. And uh, he was a, a motorcyclist. I'm not sure that how safe that is, but he did it anyhow. And uh, he worked for the CIA. And uh, from there, he built his own company. And he had a lot of money because he, was, he, he decided it was going to do something that would help blind people all over the world. And he started a, an, an app for phones which would help people sort out by GPS exactly where they were. And at the click of a button, would give instructions to where they wanted to go next. It's been a massive boon for blind people all over the world. But you know, about 10 years ago, I think it was, maybe 20 now, actually, sorry, 20 years ago, Mike May went with his wife to a checkup she had with the optician. And there was an ophthalmologist there who said, Mike, while you're here, do you mind if I just have a look at your eyes? And he said, no, that's all right, it's okay. Um, but, you know, I've never been able to see since I was three years old. And he said, uh-huh, let me have a look. And uh, after having a look, he said, you know, I have a friend who has a pioneering operation, and we've done it six times, and it's worked, never with somebody who's been blind as long as you have, but I reckon I could probably get your sight back. And this was such a surprising thing. He said, well, <laughs> let me go away and think about that. But in the end, he said, yeah, okay, let's try it. And he had the operation. And after that, he had to keep on going back. He had bandages over his eyes for quite a while. And they'd take the bandages off uh, and just check what progress was being made. 
And one day he went to have the bandages taken off and he, he knew that he had another appointment three weeks ahead, so he wasn't expecting anything much. And as soon as he took the bandages off, he realized what had happened. He could see again. And he looked round. And the first thing he saw was his wife. And that picture was the moment when he actually saw his wife. This, this picture, I forgot to mention, he actually coached uh, a baseball team uh, of young people for many years and drew up the schedules and practice times and all sorts of things for them. But seeing his wife was just amazing. He'd, he'd met her, he'd courted her, he'd married her without any idea what she looked like. He lived with her and produced two sons with her for years without any idea what she looked like. And he says in the book about it, wow, I just looked at it and thought, that's blonde hair, I think, and my wife is blonde, if I remember. Whoa, I'm married to this woman, that's her. And it was the greatest moment of his life, seeing someone whom he'd loved for years and never actually met. That is what the second coming's going to be like. It's going to be pretty amazing, isn't it? And so, final thing we have to make out, out of it here. What can we say about this whole thing? Well, I think it affects our past, our present, and our future if we get it into place. This girl is one I referred to earlier. She's Jane Haney. She's being realised in Scotland as, as one of the great heroes of the 20th century, not because she's Scots, although that is a good start, but because of what she did in the Second World War that nobody realised until comparatively recently. You see, she was brought up in a family where her parents both died while she was young. She was brought up by her grandparents. After school, where she did really well, actually, um, there was nothing for her to do because there were no jobs for girls in those days apart from secretaries and clerks. So she joined a Coates Payton in, in Paisley, a, a, a thread and fabric firm, and worked in their office, which was boring. And she felt, because she was a Christian, God wants to do something with my life. And one night she went, went to a meeting in Glasgow where a, a Church of Scotland minister who was working in Budapest gave a report. And he was talking about a girls' school in Budapest where Jewish and Christian girls had a safe place to be. This was just before the Second World War. And he talked about how just showing the love of Christ to these Jewish children was one of the most important things they could do. And many of the Jewish parents in the city were very glad to have this, this place where their, their children could be safe and loved and looked after. And Jane Henning came back that night and said to her friends when she got home, I have found my wife's purpose. <laughs> they were looking for a matron in Budapest. She applied, she got the job, and she spent the next few years just loving the girls there in, in, in Budapest. And uh, she, had, she had an enormous impact on them. Uh, they're all old ladies now, the ones that are still alive. And they still talk very fondly about the way she made them feel human when everything else in Budapest was against them. They talk about her sitting down and having her sew yellow stars on the Jewish girls' coats and weeping so much as she did it that she could hardly see the needle because she just hated it. She refused to allow anybody to wear a yellow star in the school. Christian or Jewish or whoever you were, it made no difference. God loved you, so I love you. She took them on holidays. She did all kinds of things for them. She went to the market at six o'clock every morning to buy the best fruit and vegetables she could so it could be well fed. For some of them, they weren't getting much food at home. And of course, eventually the day came when somebody informed on her. She hadn't done anything, but uh, nonetheless, uh, a black car comes up with two Gestapo men and a policeman in it. She went out at 11 o'clock with them after a long discussion in her office and said to the girls, don't worry, I'll be back by lunchtime. They never saw her again. The only two documents we have left of Jane Haney after that point are her will, which we discovered 
she'd written to him weeks and, uh, before. She realized she was on a collision course with death. And she made her will, not that she had much to leave, and so she was prepared for the end. The other thing we got was a postcard from Auschwitz, talking about conditions in the hut that she'd been put into, and asking her friends to send some bread and some fruit, because you can't get anything like that in the concentration camp, and it's not for me, it's for the other people in the hut. And some of those people who knew her in there are still alive today, and they say she was absolutely amazing. She believed in God so much. She trusted in Jesus and his second coming so much. She didn't care what happened to her, provided she was serving her master well. And by the time that postcard came, we now know she'd already been exterminated in the gas ovens. And the whole story just disappeared until a few years ago when people discovered that her, that her personal papers were in the archives of the Church of Scotland in George Street in Edinburgh. And nobody had looked at them for years. And now Jane Henning has become a big story. And there are stained glass windows in churches and the little statues and plaques and all sorts of things starting to appear. It's too late to help Jane in any way whatsoever. And there must be people like her whose stories have never been recovered, whose pictures have never been found. But God has their tears in a bottle. And because Jesus is coming back, nothing is lost forever. And she'll receive her reward, as will everybody else who served God in this world, however imperfectly, when Jesus comes again in glory. But it deals with the present as well. This guy's been scoring goals for France in the World Cup over the last week. This is Olivier Giroud. You might remember he used to play for, for Spurs and for Chelsea in Britain. And he became a Christian through some of the Christian players when he was here in Britain and became involved with Holy Trinity Brompton and Nicky Gumbel and people like that. And just recently, he's been running alpha courses online for his friends. And as you can imagine, the friends of a professional footballer tend not to be very churchy people. <laughs> And so it's, it, it's remarkable what's going on. And he's, he's now got a, a tattoo on his wrist which says, the Lord is my shepherd, uh, uh, in Latin. <laughs> and uh, uh, he's, he's just changed his life completely. And so in the present, somebody who's got all the money and the, the fame and everything else that you could imagine is living a very different kind of life from before. And people are starting to notice. And it's because he knows that one of these days he'll be accountable to a Jesus who is really coming back and he just wants to be there with him forever, with things to present to him from now. So it affects the past, the memory of the past. It makes the value of the present different as well. The things you have, the toys you get in life, the getting the heights and being famous, they don't count. What counts is the master's well done. And then there's the future. And this is uh, a guy who's not quite so well known as the middle one and a bit better known than the, the, the last one. This is my grandfather. <laughs> and I never knew him. He died before I was born. But he became a Christian in the 1920s revival amongst fisher folk on the east coast of Scotland. And uh, he named his, his fishing boat the Lively Hope <laughs> because that's what Christians have got. And that's a phrase that Peter uses when he talks about the fact that we have a living hope. It's not just a, 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 a dead kind of conviction that it's all going to work out. We have a living hope. It's a living hope because we know Jesus now and we'll know him better then. And uh, he had three books called the Lively Hope. He ended up with the Lively Hope three just at a point where he uh, contracted a cancer that was to kill him. And I've often heard from my granny, who's also died herself now, of the way my granddad died. And uh, when he was really at the end, the last words he spoke were to quote a verse of an old hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, which is about somebody's life and the way they're approaching heaven. The verse that he quoted went like this, I've wrestled on toward heaven, against storm and wind and tide, 
now like a weary traveller who leaves on his guide, amid the shades of evening, while sinks life's lingering sand, I hail the glory dawning in Emmanuel's land. Now my granddad went to death, into the future, with a solid certainty that his lively hope had never let him down and never would. Okay, he was going to be amongst those who are alive and remain and hear the trumpet, but he was going to be there with Jesus first. <laughs> so, what are we supposed to do then? As John mentioned, the, 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 the passage ends with, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Uh, no, sorry, wrong, wrong, wrong phrase. I'm looking at the wrong passage there. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Very similar, but different passage. Encourage each other. What does it actually mean? Well, that's the word paraklesis. Parakalite, one another, it says. And paraklesis is an interesting word. It's, it's why the, the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the paraclete, the comforter, the strengthener. And paraklesis means three different things. First of all, it does mean comfort. In all of the sorrows and anxieties and stresses of life, the fact that Jesus is coming back and we're going to be there is one of the greatest things that can give you courage and, and comfort to move forward. But it's more than that. Paraclesis isn't just about comforting people, putting your arm around their shoulder and saying, they're there, it's going to be all right. It also means to strengthen and to challenge people, to push them into action. And that's one thing that the Holy Spirit does for us, isn't it? He just doesn't comfort us. He brills, brings all sorts of instincts into us to go out and do things in the name of the Lord and, and, and be better people and serve God better. And that's part of paraclesis too. And so strengthen and challenge one another with these words is another thing that it means. There's a challenge here. If we have a limited time until Jesus does come back, if your life is as short as it actually is, then how are you going to use it? How are you going to invest it for his kingdom? That's the most important thing you can do. And third and finally, paraclesis means to stand beside somebody. And we should stand beside one another with these words as well. Encourage and move forward one another. Strengthen one another. And, and be there for one another in a way that makes the the, the, the second coming, the important goal that we're all looking forward to when Jesus comes and we rise to meet him in the air. That's enough for one evening, I think, John, so I'll hand back to you at this point. Excellent. Thank you, John. I'm glad I didn't have that passage. <laughs>